Hey there, and welcome to the Open Doors uh, Sermon Podcast. This week we are um, a little bit behind on getting this sermon out, so I apologize for that. But this is a great one by Reverend Lee Scott. Lee is the parish associate at the Open Door Church. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that the day, your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Our sermon today comes from our parish associate, Lee Scott. Thanks. Would you pray with me? 
blessing of the hearing of your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Whether we like it or not, our lives revolve around rules. Order is established for our lives based off of common practices as well as written codes. Sometimes these two intersect with each other and create a stronger social contract that helps govern how we live life with those around us. For example, on my drive here today, and I hope this is also the same for any of you who drove, I drove on the right side of the road. <laughs> I stopped at stoplights. Right, Shauna? I stopped at the stoplights. Yeah. Okay. I didn't go through Morningside, so I didn't have to execute rolling stops. <laughs> and I generally obeyed the speed limit. And generally. And I had a reasonable expectation that those around me in the other lanes were doing roughly the same. The social expectations put upon us by the literal rules of the road help maintain order and hopefully lead us in a path of at least highway righteousness. However, certain things are beyond our reach and would require a theophany, or the direct intercession of Yahweh, in order to create a renewed social order that leads to flourishing, common good, and justice. Metaphorical evidence of this would be the, the complete and total use of turn signals. <laughs> we like to think that we live well into the rules that are set for us. Now many of you know that my day-to-day -day work at the CCO uh, is as the Director of Human Resources. So I like rules so much I write them. <laughs> and I set them forth in an employee handbook, and I would love that that would be unnecessary because I'm dealing with a group of campus missionaries. But the fact is, we need expectations and boundaries for each other, because even in a Christian organization, sin abounds. We can find ourselves in need of the structure of rules. Well, we would like to think that the model of love your neighbor as yourself will be normative guidance within our culture. Too often our own practices are to love our neighbor to the same degree that we think they would love us. Leading to an insular, suspicious, and fearful experience. Not only do we need a rules-based order, we need to have the social contracts and expectations to live within them. From purely practical matter, that's what we're looking at today. Now, I have to also say that some passages are so familiar that you almost have to borrow a Yogi Berraism that no one knows what certain scripture passages say because they're too familiar. On its face, this doesn't make any sense, but I swear to you, it's the truth. When's the last time you were surprised by the Christmas story? Similarly, today, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. I know, this can be a fraught subject for some of us. Um, especially anybody who sees them in a court of law and gets concerned about separation of church and state. But hear me out. We're in church today. We need to spend more time with the Old Testament, not less. We need to lean into the foundations of the Bible that Jesus lived with in order to help understand the canon as it's currently constructed. 
However, to deal seriously with the whole of the Ten Commandments, and you guys aren't going anywhere for the next, like, 12 hours, are you? <laughs> okay. Um, to deal seriously with the whole of the Ten Commandments, we would need at least nine more weeks. Someone with a better command of Hebrew than myself, maybe Charlton Heston, if you remember the movie. <laughs> so for today, we're going to get a survey, right? We're just going to go over a little bit of it to help introduce something that you may be familiar with, but I want you to see with new eyes. Because scripture has this beautiful way of opening itself up to us when we see it again afresh. Okay? So we're going to dive in to um, placing this legal code in the context of its scriptural home here. And then dive into one of the most important commandments that honestly no one ever got right. And venture into why these are so important for us to study in light of the hope of Jesus. So you heard Exodus 20, 1 through 17. Um, I'll be honest, I went longer than the lectionary today because the lectionary doesn't include some of the things I really want to focus on. It does one, two, skip a few when it gives us verses. So what Exodus 20 is doing, it's following this, uh, this brief uh, section uh, after Jethro has been with Moses, helped guide Moses to a deeper understanding, honestly, of, of how to manage his work leading Israel through the wilderness. Israel finds itself at Sinai, and Moses is brought up to the mountain. It inaugurates what is called the Book of the Covenant, all of the rules by which Israel is to live by. If we read 21 through 23, we get a long list of how-tos. There's some scholars that say, you know, this doesn't fit within the wilderness narrative. This all looks like stuff that you'd need to be in a settled place in order to use. But it's here, so we deal with it as it is. The structure here is the relationship first with Yahweh to Yahweh's people. Then, of essential significance, the people to one another. Covenant demands a community. You cannot have a covenant alone. And it's one of the great, uh, great eye-opening experiences for me coming out of a more fundamental evangelical background is it's not just about my personal salvation. Yes, that's a part, but it's broader than that. It's a covenant. Covenant demands community. Yahweh demonstrates this to Israel very tangibly by drawing them out of bondage. Drawing them into the wilderness, also known as Yahweh's laboratory. In truth, Yahweh has taken Israel away from slavery, despite the tremendous grumbling and constant frustrations of the people. Yahweh still loves them, chose them, and is blessing them. But there has to be standards. There has to be expectations. Even very plainly, if we were to read further, um, Yahweh would say, Moses, set up a boundary for them. Don't let them come too close. Set up a fence. How does Yahweh do this? The relationship 
giving a greater level of definition here and the only way, only in a way that a covenant can accomplish. For God has made them who were no people a people. God has given freedom to those who were slaves. And what follows is what the relationship, if it is to be continued, must have from the people of Israel back to Yahweh. Yahweh loves Israel but wants to lay out what their end of the deal is. It's not transactional so much as it is promissory. We see this clearly in the legal code by our first four commandments dealing directly with the expectations of the Israel-Yahweh relationship followed by the rules to set up a thriving community as they anticipate entry into the promised land. This is the opening section of this whole book of the covenant. Like I said, we could spend weeks on this, and honestly, I do encourage us to spend some dedicated time studying the Ten Commandments. There's a deep and abiding beauty to how Yahweh longs to be in relationship with Yahweh's people. However, today, we're going to focus specifically on the Fourth Commandment, the one that everyone struggles to live out well. Let me read it again. Verse 8, 9, and 10, and 11. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now, as I have confessed to Emily, I am no Hebrew scholar. I cannot actually tell you the alphabet anymore. <laughs> But, God bless John Durham, um, who wrote the commentary uh, on Exodus that I used. Remember, in the Hebrew text, is not the mild sort of remember of trying to recall what you had for dinner last night, or where you left your keys, or whether I put the book back in the fridge, which I did. Instead, it is an imperative that communicates always in context of covenantal observation and the sense of observe without any lapse to this observation or hold as a present and continuing priority. What is a Sabbath? A Sabbath is a day of cessation, rest or ceasing from interrupting the normal or interrupting the normal activity of work and having nothing to do with the way it has been rendered, in many cases, being recast as a day of relaxation. Um, my colleagues and the new campus ministers that come in each year at the CCO will tell you I'm famous for the phrase, Sabbath is a day of rest unto the Lord, not a day of relaxation unto Netflix. I feel like some people might have been seen by that. <laughs> Kept 
kept free from the customary labor of sustenance of the other six, the six days allotted for business as usual of life must be made to suffice. But why? Well, freed from their customary labor, the commandments call the commandment calls Israel to respond with a cessation of work in the way of Yahweh. The goal here is that they would model their lives around a praxis embraced by their creator and deliverer. Remembering here is contrasted with the life that was lived in Egypt in forced labor with no day of interruption. It commands them to celebrate the Sabbath day as a stopping day, proclaiming not only their dependence upon Yahweh, but also their independence of all other peoples and powers. But here's the thing. You can take that and say, well, this is just my personal thing, right? I Sabbath. And it's possible to be very self-important in that statement. And it's also possible to be very self-centered. But it's not just for you. You see, remember, these are a social contract that is being established within the nation of Israel. The Sabbath is a kosher-making action. Let it sink into your minds there. The Sabbath was not just a means of liberating Israel from the cares of their work week, only to employ others to do their work once a week. It was no excuse to permit uh, the bringing in of outside laborers or, you know, tying up the donkey to the plow and letting it plow the field on its own on Sunday. Um, the Sabbath has real social consequences for the whole of the society. For remember, the rights most often and easily afforded were ones to males within this context in an ancient Near Eastern culture. Yet special care is taken to ensure that this extends beyond the male head of the household to the whole family. But that's not all. It's for the slave, for the livestock, perhaps most beautifully for the foreigner traveling in the midst of your town. Let this be a witness for others. This is a transformational notion that feels like it might have been dead on arrival. At least if it was coming to us. As friends, we're not the first culture built upon strife. Sabbath was a countercultural notion from the start. Why else would Yahweh be so explicit in the text about this? In no space does it say, you're doing really good at keeping Sabbath, Israel. Make sure you keep doing it this way. No, it goes to great lengths to characterize a new way of living that relies on Yahweh to provide for the seventh day. Is there a group that it doesn't mention that is excluded from experiencing the Sabbath? I think it's really clear that the answer is no. Everybody is touched by it. It doesn't mention anyone excluded from that. So why is it so hard? Resting is supposed to be easy, right? Setting things down is supposed to be Easy. Well, why do I work all the time? <laughs> My wife is nodding vigorously. 
Seriously, ask yourself the question. We assume from like childhood on that rest is supposed to be this easy thing to achieve, right? But it's not at all. It takes an action to set down all the other cares of the week, all of the other things you might be able to do, put the to-do list in a drawer and not be concerned about it and trust that it'll still be there tomorrow. And it's okay if I don't do it today because ideally it should be right where you're at right now and give the opportunity to get glory to God. So, what meaning does this have for us in the light of the covenant we're under, the resurrection? Well, these are Yahweh's expectations for the covenant community for Israel. But they become for us a model of expectations of the covenant that we're grafted into. Through the cross, we're offered a covenant with the very same God through the person and work of Jesus. So then, it doesn't become a sense of, are you practicing the Sabbath in order to achieve your salvation or achieve favor or achieve fill in the blank? It becomes, how then do we respond to what has already been done for us? We're not given a legal code in the same manner that Israel was given. We're instead offered an invitation of confessing that yes, we do in fact believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that reigns here and now over the whole of creation, for nothing is beyond the reach of God. So if we have a God who we confess to believe in, and who we love, one who offers us the abundance of grace and welcomes us into fellowship and relationship, what governs our response? And I think there's just too many little lords trying to take control over us. Fear, fear of temporal surroundings, that God's promises aren't in fact real. Slothfulness, taking the grace for granted and responding to God without gratitude. In debt, I lived in this one for a long time of hoping that our actions can somehow earn me the favor of God who was already given to me, or believing ourselves to be worth less yet striving for what can only be given? Or should we live in gratitude with a heart transformed by the Holy Spirit who wraps us in the gentle love of Yahweh who desires first to be in relationship with us and second that we live in healthy and just relationships with one another? I recommend this path of gratitude. We should spend our days walking in step with the Holy Spirit as Paul describes in Galatians 5 that we would exhibit a fruitful life bearing forth love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Sabbath has a role to play in this gratitude-filled response by stepping back from the day-to-day -day and spending dedicated time once a week to surrender our essential-ness, we too can live into the hope that Sabbath brings. Friends, you are all beautiful and wonderful human beings, but you are not a human doing. You are tasked with the burden, you are not tasked with the burden, not tasked with the burden of Atlas to carry the world upon your shoulders. 
Instead, you're invited to bear witness to a, the transformative nature of living into relationship with the one true God. So here's your question. How would Sabbath transform your life? And this is where you get the like, true confession of the person up here preaching. Like, some of you may have this under way better control than I do. You may have a beautiful Sabbath rhythm. And if that is the case, praise God. That is awesome. I don't have that. So my preaching today is from the heart. I'm, I'm right there with you. So these questions are mine too. And it's more, I'm sharing them with you as a fellow wanderer than I'm trying to project that I've got it nailed, because I don't. How would Sabbath transform your life? I'm here to tell you it would upend mine. For the first while, it would be terribly inconvenient. All those times I overpromise and underdeliver using a Sunday afternoon to cheat and take care of work email, catch up on farm work that I need to do out of obligation or burden rather than out of a response of joy. All those times to go through the motions of worship without showing up mentally or emotionally. Sabbath shakes everything. It's an uncomfortable confrontation to the socially acceptable concept of being crazy busy. Truthfully, though, how we live becomes a response to what has been done on behalf of the whole of creation. Rather than feel burdened to practice the Sabbath, to earn salvation, we have access to it as a gift, as a promise of a covenant offered to us through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So what will we allow to form us more fully into practicing Christians? The pace of the schedules we have made for ourselves? Or those that have been made by our labor? Or will we allow for the total upending of our lives that Sabbath would give? May this become a framework for how we respond to what God has already done for us. If you want a journey on that path with me, let me know.